there, I'm Michelle Bunch, and this is Enthusiasm Diaries. Enthusiasm is contagious, and in this podcast, we get to share in the enthusiasm of others and perhaps spark some of our own curiosity along the way. Thanks so much for listening. In this episode, I interviewed Jill Ullman. Jill is a licensed professional counselor who specializes in reproductive mental health. Her background includes working in private practice as well as hospital settings. In her current role, she works as part of a grant-funded pilot program in which she provides reproductive mental health support to patients right in their OB office, so the counseling and support is available right on site and free of charge. She shares why this is her dream job and why she loves doing what she's doing every day. She also shares some of her own personal background and story. I'm sure you'll love to hear what she has to say. For context, this episode was recorded in 2019. Well, hi there. I'm so happy to be here with one of my good friends, Jill Ullman, who is an awesome person, and she's an LPC. She's a licensed professional counselor who specializes in reproductive mental health. And I know this is a topic that I'm super interested in. I'm a young mom, but I'm sure a lot of other people out there are interested in it too. So thanks so much for for doing this. Of course. Honestly, no, I'm so thrilled. And I obviously am very passionate about it as well. So it's just exciting to be able to talk about it and especially with someone that, you know, cares about it deeply as well. It's great. Awesome. Well, to start off, can you tell us a little bit just what got you interested in counseling in general? Yeah, definitely. You know, honestly, I think that I always had a little bit of an interest in it, but my entire life growing up, I was always told I talk too much. And that's not exactly what a therapist is meant to do, right? I mean, you go to a therapist to listen, to have someone listen to you. And so I think that deep down, it was maybe something that I was interested in, especially around the fact that in high school and definitely college and maybe even outside of that, I would have girlfriends kind of coming to me for advice. And I feel like I've always been a pretty logical person, but then also really reserved space for emotions. And I love emotions and I'm a big fan of emotions and I wouldn't be a therapist if I wasn't, right? And it came, um, a lot of it came naturally. Yes. Yeah. And so I feel like people did, like I said, would maybe seek counsel or seek advice from me or just, you know, have me lend a listening ear. But that never felt necessarily like a career. You know, I started my career in New York City, working in fashion, wanting to, yeah, like wanting to, you know, change the world with clothes or something, something fun like that. Um, And then when I moved to Denver, that just obviously wasn't really a reality. And so I kind of had to reevaluate, okay, if the path I thought I was on is changing, what does it look like now? Um, And especially then when I got pregnant with my daughter, it was like, gosh, I would really love a vocation. You know, that's that's so important to have something that you really love to do. Totally. Um, Especially if you're going to be away from your kids. Yeah. And so that's exactly it. Um, And I didn't even have her at the time. And yet I knew that whatever I did was going to have to be important enough for me to feel like leaving her was worth it. Yeah. Um, And so even while I was still pregnant, I started researching programs and just seeing what master's programs were out there. Um, And having just had a baby, I was, Ella was one month old when I started the program. And that's crazy. Just that is crazy. It was. I remember How sitting in class and being like, oh my gosh, I think I'm still wearing my hospital underwear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
But, you know, I mean, just I was very, very, very blessed that I was able to stay at home during the day with her, oh, go right. to class nights and weekends, so we didn't have to worry about child care. Oh, uh, yeah, that so makes it sense, ended actually. Up being the perfect season for it. Wow. Um, and I had such an easy pregnancy, easy delivery, no issues. And I think I was just so clueless to all of the things that can go wrong. And little by little, those things started manifesting, not necessarily in my own life, but in friends' lives. I had a dear friend who had a miscarriage and then one who lost a baby at three days old and others who were having DNCs or couldn't get pregnant. And, you know, just these really horrific things that all of a sudden it's like the rose-colored goggles came off and I realized, oh, there's a lot more to pregnancy than just sex, pregnancy, baby, right? Right. There's so, there's a lot and there's emotions. There's really strong emotions around that. Um, and that's when I really just thought there has to be more. There has to be someone who can meet with people and talk to people in in this season. Because I imagine some of those friends were coming to you just as a good friend and someone who... Exactly. Yeah. Wow. And then even as a mom. And, and truthfully, the crazy thing is that I didn't necessarily even understand a big part of it. Having, you know... I. I will say this now because I'm sure I'll share more later, but it was actually very easy for me to get pregnant the first time around, yeah. not so much the second time. Um, and so the first time around having, you know, very easy to get pregnant, very easy pregnancy. I, of course, I was a little bit nauseous in the beginning, but mm-hmm. it didn't, I wasn't throwing up every day. I was able to go to work. Yeah. Um, I had a very, very quick medication-free birth. It was just really the kind of the dream experience. Textbook. It was very textbook. And so I think even my own naivety about what it can look like was so clouded. And then to see this, oh, wait, that isn't actually typical. That isn't textbook, right? Right. That's almost the exception. That's not the rule. So then to have, you know, people coming in, oh my gosh, Jill, like I pushed for 48 hours and then finally had an emergency C-section or, oh, I had preeclampsia after birth. I mean, have you ever heard of such a thing? No, wow. So just all these different stories that it was like, oh, oh, there's something else here. Mm -hmm. And I just really started pursuing it even, even more. So that was, that was even like right when Ella, your first daughter was pretty young. Wow. So that was definitely in grad school. In grad school, I knew, I mean, maybe not in the first three months, but already by into the second year of grad school, I just thought, no, there's something here and I want to pursue this. And I really just started Googling and researching and and finding if there was anyone in Denver that was already doing it. Yeah. Um, And there was a few people. And so I would meet with them or talk with them or read books or, you know, um, I think everyone, most people are familiar with the Brooke Shields Down Came the Rain, postpartum depression book. And that really was such a big She was one of the first voices for a lot of that, wasn't she? She really was. She really was. Um, And in that sense, I think she really shined a light on postpartum depression, which I think is phenomenal. Yeah. That being said, in my practice, and I'm sure we can talk more about this, I see so many more uh, patients and clients with postpartum anxiety or postpartum OCD. Uh And so I think postpartum depression gets all the hype because people are willing to talk about it. And so then the anxiety and the OCD and those racing thoughts and those fears don't necessarily get addressed because, well, I'm not depressed. I love my baby. Everything's great. And so it doesn't necessarily maybe spark the the alerts right depression because I'll say even when I had my son I got a lot of talk with my doctor about what to expect for for um postpartum depression but nothing for anxiety and that was fairly recently so yeah that's really interesting interesting I know it definitely is um you know I think it's what you have to be aware of and and normalizing yeah exactly yeah 
Well, just to back up a little bit, you mentioned, so you have three children now, and you mentioned that Ella, your oldest, was a pretty, again, textbook experience. Can Are you willing to share a little bit about your other experiences and what that was like? Yes, definitely. So I don't know whether it was, you know, fate or just being in the world or who knows, you know, you never know why these things happen. Um, But when we thought we were ready for our second one, we actually, in fairness, didn't think we were ready for a second one. Jason (laughs) had just gotten out of school and Jason wanted me to work for a little bit. Jason, my husband, wanted me to work for a little bit first. Um, And I just casually mentioned in passing to my OB that my mom had gone through um, menopause at, I think, age 33. Really? Yes. Really, really early. But her doctor at the time told her that it was stress-induced. My parents are divorced. She had just recently left my dad, left with three kids, moved in with her parents. Yeah, There's obviously a lot of stress going on and stress-induced menopause. Well, so when I mentioned that to my OB, he was like, um, that's not a thing. So let's maybe do some <laughs> tests on you. Um, and so they did some tests on me and they called back and they said, your levels are low. And this was literally verbatim. And I'm, I want to add, I adore my OBGYNs. Yeah. I think they are phenomenal. In this exact moment, I wish that they would have given me more. But they <laughs> called me and said, your levels are low. You're a 0.4. We consider a 1.0 the the lowest that we like to see so we'd like you to make an appointment with Colorado Center for Reproductive Medicine which if any of your listeners know yeah. that it's world famous reproductive medicine here in, in Denver um literally celebrities and people flying really from all I didn't over know it was that it's wow I knew huge. okay it's essentially the Silicon Valley for for reproduction Denver is wow yeah I didn't know it's that pretty crazy um, so I freaked out immediately. I didn't even know what low levels were and what that I know, that's means. what I was wondering, low levels of what? So I just had to Google and find out what are low levels. Turns out my I had a 0.4 AMH, which is, which is essentially your um, ovarian quality, your egg oh. quality. Okay. FSH is your ovarian reserve. Okay. Um, and so you can have a lot of eggs left, but if they're not good quality, or you can have you know, not very many eggs left, but they're of good quality. So you can FSH and maybe I'm saying that wrong. And so I apologize in in advance, but you can change your FSH. So I think you can change, that's right. You can change the quality of your eggs. It's hard to do, but you can with healthy eating and different things. Okay. Your AMH, I mean, once the eggs are gone, they're gone. So that's, that's where I I apologize because I misspoke. The AMH is how many eggs you have left. Okay. And again, kind of combination of, you know, just how good they are. Okay. So a one, yeah, which I should, you know, say this kind of as a, as a preemptive warning, I guess they don't even test that anymore because there's so many factors that, that fall into place. And I recently told my OB that I had been told I had low AMH and she kind of, my other OB laughed and was like, oh yeah, we don't even test that anymore. I mean, this was six, oh, wow. seven years ago. Yeah. Not that it's long, not that really. Long ago. Um, and so, you know, to, but I immediately went into panic mode and thought, oh my gosh, I'm infertile and I have to Does make an appointment yeah, with CCRM immediately. They have a, a minimum of a three-month wait list. Everyone's trying to get in. So I made the appointment mm-hmm. and we just started trying and we did all the things. And I really, at that point, really started understanding my fertility. Um, and the silver lining to that is, is that I do feel like I have such a better understanding of fertility than I ever did in my whole life. Yeah. To an extent of where I wish that I had known these things when I was 16, 18, 20 years old, that like Just I could tell when I was body. getting my period and yeah. my body was telling me when I was about to, not that I cared when I was ovulating when I was 20, but it would have at least 
you know, yeah, I would just... have been surprised by my period in history class or right. something. <laughs> right. um, you know, just I would have been more aware of my body's signs just mm-hmm. telling me yeah. so many things. Because our bodies are so amazing. I know. They tell us. And we don't oh, listen to them so much it. of the time. It's crazy. That's yeah. it. So I really became kind of a student of my own body. And I was taking my basal body temperature and checking my cervical mucus. And you can even yeah. feel for your cervix. And, you know, your skin will glow or your hair will look a certain way. And just different different pieces. And so every month we would try. And every month nothing. And if I'm being honest, my journey on that was only six months. So after six months, we were able to get pregnant. Um, but... Imagine any, it also felt longer than that does. too. And, and it was a super stressful period. And it that's sounds exactly like. it. And that's the thing that I share. So I've led many, many infertility support groups over the years. And when I share my, the little bit of my story that I think is appropriate to share, I say, you know, please know that I've been on a small part of your journey. Mm-hmm. And I, for those of you sitting in the room, 18 months, three years, five, six, eight years down the road of this fertility journey, I, I'm not going to pretend to know what that feels like. Right. But I do know what it feels like to throw away your pills, to, you know, track your, your period, to have sex on demand mm-hmm. where all romance is out the door. I mean, right. it was like for produ- reproduction only. Right, right. Um, I know what that feels like. I know what it feels like to have it turn into your second job where you're mm-hmm. charting and you're eating and you're anything you can do to be increasing your mm-hmm. fertility and you don't know that it's going to end in six months. Right. So if someone yeah. said to me, okay, Jill, yeah, this is rough, but it will end in six months. Okay. I could have checked it off the list, but month three, it's the unknown. Month four, yeah. month five, I didn't know. And so it was, you know, it is, it's, it's a traumatic time. So I can't even imagine being in a situation where you're 18 months, three years, yeah. five years, six years of this. That's I mean, it's a marathon that never ends. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was very fortunate that after six months, literally the week before, I think I was supposed to go to CCRM, I found out I was pregnant. Oh, really? So I canceled the appointment, of course, um, and was so excited, you know, had, was thrilled. And at our 13-week scan, I believe, is when they measure the neck, right? It's the nuchal translucency, I believe is what it's called, NT. It's an NT scan. And they said, you know, I... I just want to be honest, the neck looks a little thick. Mm -hmm. Um, We've seen thicker, but when it's in this range, we like to do additional tests. So we'd like to do some blood work. Um, And we, this can mean a variety of things, one of which is Down syndrome. And I thought, this is going to be nothing. Mm -hmm. Of course, we got scared right away. But then I thought, they're going to do the blood work. We're going to freaked out for two weeks until it comes back. It's going to come back maybe a little abnormal. We could do an amnio if we wanted, but we'll just kind of move on and everything will be fine. Yeah. I thought we'd just be fine. So at, um, right the day, it was, I think, February 13th. It was the day before Valentine's Day. Mm. And my doctor called and he said, okay, do you remember? And again, this is where I truly love my OB. And in fact, I still to this day have two saved messages from my OB's office you do? on my phone. Oh, they both that gave says me their, so much. I know, because they both gave me their personal cells and said, call anytime. Yeah. They really handled the situation beautifully. But um, he said, do you know why we did the blood test? And I said, yeah, you were testing for Down syndrome. And he said, the test has come back 99.9% positive for Down syndrome. Now, in fairness, that is a pretty um, outdated test at this point. Now, mm-hmm. in, in 2019, mm-hmm. they would never say it's positive for Down syndrome. It, whether that's true or not, that it didn't matter to me. I mean, it was 99%. They, test, they were testing chromosomes. Right. And that was what was coming back. Um, so I think I've heard from other people in my community that in the Down syndrome community that, you know, you don't ever say that a test is positive for Down syndrome, but 
wording aside, right. the chances were almost 100% that mm-hmm. the baby I was carrying had Down syndrome. Um, and, you know, I'll be completely honest. We were heartbroken. Mm-hmm. We grieved. We cried and cried and cried. I think my mother-in-law was in town that weekend, and I literally went into my room and pulled the covers over my head and just yeah. let her take care of my daughter and, and cried in bed for the entire weekend and just... You know, we really felt like we had been cursed Mm. and why were we being burdened with this? Um, And, you know, my mother-in-law had mentioned, because we told her, of course, because she was there, and she had mentioned something like, well, I'm sure the two of you have met a chat, you know, people with Down syndrome before. And I said, honestly, no. If I'm being honest with you, I have zero experience Experience, with Down syndrome. I maybe have seen a bagger at the grocery store Mm -hmm. or a adult workshop group coming, you know, to an event or something, but... I have had no personal interaction. Yeah. So it, this was so foreign and strange to me. Um, so we did not, we, you know, we decided against termination and mm-hmm. we moved forward with the pregnancy. And um, through the pregnancy, learned that he would have some different health issues mm-hmm. um, that would require likely a NICU stay and most definitely a surgery and just kind of prepared for that. And that changed our plans for how we, um, where we would deliver and how we would I'm deliver sure. and all those things. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you really compare and contrast my very easy textbook, no problem wow. pregnancy with my daughter to now stress and fear and anxiety and worry and doubt and terror and unknown, despair and unknown. Yeah. I mean, just every emotion that you could imagine. And, you know, we had people in our lives that were like, well, we're going to pray that this isn't true and that he'll come out normal. And, mm. um, you know, and then we got to a place where it was like, no, we're going to love him either way. Right. And, um, so it was it was definitely even a of an adjustment trying to figure out how we were going to we didn't worry about loving him but then bringing him into our world into our community into our people and what that was going to look like right. and um so had a couple of bumps along the road I did end up having to get um an amniotic reduction which was traumatic and went into labor at 36 weeks and and got Pitocin, which any of you ladies listening that have got Pitocin, you are my warriors because that is no joke. I've heard that. Yeah. uh, Yeah. All thoughts of a natural birth. I wanted to try it natural again. And those are out the window. There's just no break. You don't get a break with Pitocin. Like the contractions stay high and then they stay high. Like they just never go down. So um, yeah, champion. So got that epidural as quickly as they would let me after that Pitocin. Excuse me. But um so he came and I got to hold him for about 20 or 30 minutes before mm. he went to the NICU and Jason went to the NICU with him and the NICU is kind of a whole another story and a whole another podcast, <laughs> honestly, um, because I've very often in my practice thought there's a whole separate place of therapy for NICU uh, parents. Oh, I'm um, sure. Because it is I, so traumatic. Oh, I can only imagine. It yeah. is. It's the best, worst place to be because mm-hmm. everyone there is phenomenal and take care of your babies. I mean, there's no words. They become those kiddos' parents yeah. and take care of them in a way you can't. Um, but I don't think I, there's no way that I personally could ever get over leaving the hospital without your baby. Uh, and then, you know, having to call a nurse at night and say, just wanted to check in before I went to bed. Cause you know, keeping in mind, we had a three-year-old at home, right. so you... we weren't rooming over and he was there for months. So we weren't staying over you every just night. Can't. So, yeah. so we got into a groove of, I would go and Jason would go and we would go together. And it was just, it was, I look back now and I feel like I've blocked so much of it. Cause it was very traumatic and yeah. very overwhelming. Um, but, you know, I'm obviously happy to say now that he will be six in a month. That is, is so crazy to me. Yeah. yeah. 
It is. And it he really is, is a true love. He's I mean, he's the best. He's the best. And I, I'm embarrassed and also just have to like laugh at myself for how many tears I shed over him when he was still in my belly because no. I, we had no idea the joy that was about to come. Like he is the most fun. He is the sweetest little love. He loves hugs and he loves dancing and he loves all good things. Like yeah. who doesn't want this literally ray of sunshine in, <laughs> in your house all the day, time? Yeah. Right? It's the best. So it, it, we thought it was going to be the worst thing ever. And it legitimately is just the best thing. And I feel so lucky that my other kiddos are being, are growing up. This is their With brother. This influence. is their normal. Right. So when I at 33 am saying no, I had I have never even met a person with Down syndrome. That's not their story. They're right. like, oh yeah, no, we. Let me tell syndrome. you about it. Yeah, we got this. Um, so mm. that you know is is I mean couldn't be a better story on our end. Yeah. And then um, after we had him and you know dealt with a, really truly a year of in and out of the hospital oh, and yeah. just kind of trying to understand how we can best be his parents and what he needs from us. You know, our doctor had asked us at the time what I wanted to do for birth control. And I said, well, I'm going to do the rhythm method. Mm-hmm. And well, and he, by then you probably also knew your, I knew my body. Yeah, right? you knew what, yeah. I knew what was, I knew that's, I knew for those six months that we were trying, I knew what, when to do it, when not to do it. And, you know, he jokingly said, you know, we call people who do the rhythm method. And I said, what? He said, parents. <laughs> And I said, no, I think we got this. Yeah. So for a year, we did the rhythm method and then had our little oops baby and got <laughs> pregnant almost exactly just a little before David turned a year old. So okay. the boys are 21 months apart. Okay. Definitely not planned at all. <laughs> um, there was a lot of surprise and secrecy around that pregnancy too, just because mm-hmm. I think we were, um, I don't know, I think we felt embarrassed just because so many people had helped us that year um so many people had stepped in Mm -hmm. and it just felt like we were kind of like oh who cares let's add another to this crazy mix um so it felt irresponsible and and yeah we just were it wasn't part of our plan and we really had thought we were done with two and Mm -hmm. so I you know honestly I didn't I don't think I told my mom until we were like 16, 18, oh my gosh. something crazy. I mean, because yeah. we just were like, oh, great. But it's such a weird thing to go so long where you're trying and you, it's like hard to get pregnant. And then after all that time learning your body, learning these things, like I can see how it's just such a mind game that yeah. then all of a sudden it happens without yeah. trying. Well, really. the crazy thing is that I knew I was ovulating right before we got pregnant with Emerson, but I thought, oh, I think I'm okay. I think I'm still in that two day window, not really thinking about how long sperm lasts in your body and all that fun stuff. <laughs> all that so, stuff. You know, the stuff that I very, you know, know, knew then, know very well now. <laughs> um, so, you know, little oops, never hurt anyone, obviously. And so now we have our little Emerson and he just turned four. He was he, just here in a Superman outfit. <laughs> yes. And he is also a little love and would not change it for the world. Yeah. And, you know, the best obviously the best things come from oops it feels like because we have our David that we didn't plan on and we had our um, Emerson that we didn't plan on and of course we have our sweet Ella that we did plan on but she's the best big sister and um, yeah Mm. Emerson is you know of course there was a lot of fear even around once you have one baby with Down syndrome there's chances your chances go up and so I um, was eligible to take the blood test again and we had a lot of fear around that I'm sure yeah yeah um, so, you know, he is a typically developing child. He does not have Down syndrome and, um, 
And he is, yes, a bundle of energy and <laughs> loves candy. And he's all boy. He's all boy. <laughs> yes. Um, and I think of all of my kiddos, I've never had someone love me as much as he loves me. Aww. Which is, is different. Um, if he had the choice, he would love to crawl back up into my uterus. And that would make him the most happy boy in the world. Um, and so, yeah, we just, we make it work. Wow. Well, and it's just, I'm sure just from your experience, and like you said, it's, you've, you've been on a bit of, of your own journey. And, yeah. and I imagine then your ability to relate to the people you work with in your work is yeah. just so influenced by that. So yeah. what can you share? I'm, I'm sure there's tons you could share on these topics, but what do you think are maybe some of the top things that's important for, for people without this experience to know about what what infertility is like and how to even be a good support to people in their life they may know that are dealing with this? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, You know, the truth is, is that any one of us can say at any time, you just don't know what you don't know, right? right? So until you've been through it, so I even look back at, as I mentioned, my very, you know, easy, whatever you want to call it, pregnancy with my first, and then look at how my second was so different and even my third was really different. And it took me either understanding my friends' perspectives or having my own perspective. And so there's a big part of me that wants to say, you know, just don't say anything to people who are struggling with infertility. But then at the same time, I don't want there to be an isolating an isolating factor. So I, I guess what I say almost all the time is, first of all, never, ever, ever ask anyone if they're pregnant or if they're going to get pregnant. That is such a sensitive topic for anyone. Yeah. Because why are you putting on the spot to say, I don't want kids? And that's a whole different discussion. Or actually, I'm trying and it's really hard. And then that's awkward. And what do you say? Probably really not what they were trying to get into when they bring that up. Exactly. So I just think asking people if they're pregnant or when they're going to have children should just be off limits. Yeah. That's kind of number one. (laughs) Number two is, you know, let's let's not make jokes about fertility. It feels like every year on April 1st, someone always has to do like an April Fool's joke of, I'm pregnant, just kidding. And that's just not really funny. I don't think <laughs> pregnancy should be funny yeah. and not getting, you know, losing babies or whatever. Nothing's funny about it. So I think let's just be sensitive yeah. to jokes about pregnancy. Um, Knowing that you never know who is around that might have their own sensitive um, story regarding that. That's exactly it. And then I guess finally, the last piece I would say is one thing that so many women share with me when they come into my office is if they lose a baby earlier in their pregnancy, so what we would consider kind of a classic miscarriage, Mm -hmm. so anything before 13 weeks is so common. And I want to make sure that people know how common it is. It's so, so common. That doesn't make it easier. That doesn't make it good. That doesn't make it, oh, no big deal. But I think unfortunately... it's not a loss. It's still a loss. Yeah. And unfortunately, there's so many people in women's lives and couples' lives that will say like, oh, well, you can try again, or you're young, or at least you can get pregnant, or they say things that you think are being helpful, Mm -hmm. but really it dismisses that this person has experienced a loss. So I guess I would just really encourage around the infertility piece, don't dismiss the loss. Right. If you can honor whether it's a loss even if it's a loss because they've lost a baby or if it's a loss that they don't even have a baby in their arms right right so as least dismissive as you can be so you know I'll have women that will say that people are like oh I thought you were over that by now I don't think that you can really ever get over losing right and what's the right time like what's the right time what does that look like right tell me what getting over it looks like yeah that I never talk about it anymore that I'm never sad about it anymore 
I mean, there's no right or wrong way to get over it. Right. One big thing that I tell every single one of my clients is this world is not a giant pyramid and we're all rushing to the top and whoever gets to the top peak of the pyramid is the winner, the pain winner. Mm-hmm. It's not a giant pyramid of pain. Every single one of us, essentially when we're born, is handed a ladder and each one of us has a rung of pain. And I don't care if you, Michelle, have been to rung 12 and I've been to rung 10. My 10 still feels painful because it's the highest I've ever been. Right. right? So it's we're not all like some own. weird it's not competition. A competition. Yeah. No. We all are on our own individual ladder. And if a six on a six rung is the mm-hmm. highest I've ever been, that's still really painful. I've never experienced anything higher than this. This so is of my course highest. It's super painful. It feels horrible. Yeah. Whereas maybe someone else has been on rung 20, and that's horrific and that's so sad, but that's their individual. 20 is their right. highest. So there doesn't need to be this at least competition. Right. It's Six was my highest, and that was horrible. And there's no need to minimize, yeah. That's it. No need yeah. to minimize. So from a fertility standpoint as well, every couple gets to decide if they would rather be educator or silence. Mm-hmm. Really, is, is kind of the two options. And you can change, you know, given any day, really. But, you know, when someone does ask you, oh, when are you guys having babies? You can either say, I don't know, we're, we're still talking about it, and kind of be silent. Or you can say, We've actually been trying really hard and it's not working out for us. And that's kind of mm-hmm. the educator piece. So everyone is on their own journey and, and you don't have to tiptoe around and make sure everyone is being so sensitive to you. But I do think that there are things that if you know someone's going through something, that just try and be a little bit more sensitive. Mm-hmm. What are the rate, like how common is infertility? One in eight. Wow. One in eight couples struggles with infertility. Yeah. And whether that means that they had a period. So, I mean, technically, would I be in that category? Because it took me six months and I had low AMH, probably. Mm -hmm. But then I did get pregnant. Are there people that struggle with it and never get pregnant? Yes. Mm -hmm. Are there people that have a first baby easily and then struggle with a secondary infertility? Of course. Yeah. So, So you know, I mean, a lot of different things. It does. Yeah. But it is. It's it's one in eight couples um, have dealt with infertility. And then kind of moving to the mood disorder piece. How common? How common is that? They say 20 to 25% experience some sort of um, perinatal mood disorder. And by that, I mean, we're talking, of course, postpartum depression. Right. But let's be clear that there is postpartum anxiety, postpartum OCD, which again are probably the top two that I see in my practice. There's postpartum PTSD because I think there there can be a lot of trauma around birth. Right. If you go in expecting a natural delivery or an unmedicated delivery and you end up with an emergency C-section, that's traumatic. Yeah, for sure. If you hemorrhage and lose blood and almost die that's traumatic right yeah. I mean there's a lot that can happen in a birth experience that can cause trauma right yeah you're right yeah makes sense there's postpartum bipolar and then of course there's <laughs> postpartum psychosis yeah wow um and, and what would you are there things like that that you think would be important for people to know just just that it's that it's super common that that it can look a lot of different ways, I imagine. Are there other things that you think would just be important for in terms of postpartum psychosis specifically? Or, or, or I'm sorry, any of the any yeah. of the um... well, the postpartum psychosis again. I think postpartum depression gets the rap for so many things, and right. so you know, someone will say, "Oh, undiagnosed postpartum depression is why that woman drove her kids into the lake," mm. or you know, we hear about kids or moms like drowning their kids in the bathtub and stuff. And let's be clear, that's postpartum psychosis. That's not depression. Yeah. Um, so I don't want people to be fearful of, in fact, I did, I had a woman sit in my practice once who was having such intense postpartum anxiety and OCD. And she was terrified to come to me because she literally was crying in my office. And she said, I thought you were going to lock me up. 
she was so scared and I said this is this is not postpartum psychosis right you're not postpartum psychosis is where you're probably not reaching out for help because you think your feelings are normal right you think I need to either end my child's life or end my life or both because this world isn't good enough or they're not good enough or you know all these different pieces there's a variety of things so that seems rational. Yeah. You know, psychosis seems rational. People who are out of psychosis don't think they're crazy. And I would imagine that's way, way, way more rare or or much more rare than... Much more rare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So, you know, just a little bit to normalize, every single mom out there is very likely going to experience some sort of baby blues within Mm -hmm. the first two to three weeks. So I just, I, you know, I would want to make that as normal as I can. Because I do, I have... A lot of people that call me or come in at that two-week mark and they're like, I don't know, I'm just crying all the time. And sometimes it's because I love my baby so much. Sometimes it's because the Starbucks guy got my order wrong. I'm like, that's okay. I mean, nine months of slowly building hormones and then all of a sudden they're all kind of gone. And there's, you know, you're not sleeping. Yeah, I think that's a huge factor. That's huge, right? Lack of sleep is a torture technique in other countries, in war-torn <laughs> countries, right? I mean, that's what it's you do true. to prisoners yeah. of war, so that they go crazy. <laughs> so, of course, you know, your brain just gets muddled, and you're exhausted, and you think this will never end. So I don't want people freaking out in those two to three weeks. Now, if you feel like you don't even want to look at your baby or hold your baby, yes, let's please have a conversation. Yeah. But if you're just experiencing a lot more crying and tears and emotions in those two to three weeks... super normal yes postpartum anxiety is going to be where oh my gosh I don't really want to leave the house because what if someone sneezed on my baby and then they haven't had their shots and then you know your brain kind of starts to race and that's why the anxiety and OCD are so closely related because then it's everyone who comes into my house has to wash their hands and wear a mask and gloves yeah you know it goes to the extreme and then, you know, there's safety and there's mothering and then there's extreme. Sure. Um, or postpartum OCD can even be, oh my gosh, I am chopping vegetables for dinner. And in my head, I thought, what if my body just out of control stabbed my baby? Well, it's not like you actually want to stab your baby, but your brain is just doing crazy things. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I even say to patients is, if we were sitting here right now and watching television and we saw a Burger King commercial come on TV, does that mean we have to go get Burger King? No. no. Nor does that mean that we were like, oh, I hope a Burger King commercial comes on. We don't will it to come on. Our brain is constantly oh, yeah. flashing and moving and thinking and doing. I mean, it's, it, it never shuts down. Yeah. So we don't have to assume that something's wrong with us just because an image flashes into our head. Right. We are no more in control of that as we are of the Burger King commercial coming right. on. Yeah. And we also don't have to act on that just because it flashed. Right. So yes, please talk to someone. I'm not saying, oh, it's no big deal. Right, right. Yes, seek therapy. There, we, You know, talk. I think the importance is, you know, fear and, and scariness and doubt hide in the dark right you need to be open about it so be open and share with someone so that you can release and normalize and and get it out of you yeah yeah exactly so that's all totally normal you know depression postpartum depression is going to look very similar to any other depression Mm -hmm. which is lack of energy flat affect not being able to connect um you know yeah feeling a little bit kind of let down about your baby Mm -hmm. not feeling super connected um not, you know yeah getting up because you have to not because you need to or sometimes not getting up or whatever yeah um so exactly what you would think of depression but it's just definitely more related to your baby, baby. and in that postpartum period yeah wow yeah. 
Um, I imagine you, your days never are the same. You probably no. get to hear so many stories. Yeah. What would you say is like your absolute favorite part of your job? Like what you get to do now that just makes you so excited? You know, I think it's a combination. First of all, it's so funny to be a therapist in a doctor's office because doctors fix people, right? right? And very often a patient will come in and talk to their doctor and say, I'm having this problem. How can you fix me? And they'll prescribe something or very likely they'll prescribe something, yeah, right? Right. So to be a therapist in a doctor's office, I think many patients come in with the same mentality of, okay, great, I'm going to go see Jill and she's going to fix me. <laughs> and therapy is not like that, right? It is very much a long game. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my my goal when I talk to people is, you know, I can tell that there's anxiety and, okay, so how are you going to fix me? And my response is always, come back. Mm-hmm. I'm going to see you next week. And then I'm going to see you next week. And I have this one patient who um, I've been seeing, I think maybe I've seen her, this is maybe her fourth or fifth week. And just last week she said to me, she's like, I just cannot thank you enough because I came in here feeling like I was crazy. And that I, she was a first time mom. Mm-hmm. Her baby was 10 days old. She literally couldn't sleep for fear that her baby was going to die in the middle of the night or that, you know, she just loved her so much and no one else could take care of her. Like she didn't. What if something just, happened? Yeah. What if something happened? And just this, the fact that she got to come in and talk with me. And these are very, very brief, they're 30 minute appointments. Yeah. But for 30 minutes, every single week she got to come in and I got to say like, first of all, you know, my top three, which I know we'll talk about in, in just a minute here, but, I, you know, we would address my top three. And then I would say, you know, like, are you getting sleep? Are you getting that five hour chunk? What are you doing for you? What are these different pieces? And every single week, it was like she breathed another sigh of relief and another. Mm. And now here she is in that four or five week. And she's like, oh, yes, that two to three weeks was the worst. It was sure. super intense. I couldn't stop crying. But now I see the light. And now... Things are opening up, and I don't think I could have gotten through those two to three weeks without oh. you. So that is what's so great is that I know that it's normal, but maybe they don't. Right. Or maybe they know it's normal, but they didn't think it was going to be this intense. Right. Or maybe it is normal, but you still need to talk to someone. There's nothing wrong with talking to someone even when something's normal. Right. Like, I can cry about a breakup and still talk about something to someone, <laughs> totally. right? And breakups are normal, but I can still have that outlet. Yeah. Um, it's super so I important. I love hearing that. I love hearing that people are like, oh my gosh, thank you. I don't know what I would have done without you. Yeah. Or those kinds and of being a, a part of that, I imagine. Yeah. That's exactly it. So what are, you mentioned the three things. Yeah. So when you talk about the, so it's the top, it's the top three things for the fourth trimester. Yeah. What are those? Yeah. So I think, you know, most people know that we define the fourth trimester as really those 12 to 13 weeks after birth because yeah. really the baby is still practically fetal, but now they're just outside your body. It's so like doing, you move from an outside or inside baby to outside that's baby. That's exactly like it, right? They're still exactly how they were kind of those last two weeks of pregnancy, but now they're just in outside. the world, yeah. right? They're still going to eat, sleep, poop, do all the stuff that they did internally but now externally so they're almost still kind of little blobby things right and it's not like they have this you know personality and they're interacting with you and you know obviously you get to know them and and they're sweet and you love them and I'm not saying that but 
even into the 12 and 13 and 14 weeks is when, you know, they're reacting to you and right. interacting with you and responding to you. I and think you see a smile. Yes. Yeah. You do and that's when they're kind of more babies. Right? right. So that fourth trimester can be really difficult. And then the really sad part about it is that right when they're, we're kind of getting out of that fourth trimester is when so many moms have to return to work. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, so here, hard. like their baby is just now becoming interactive and it's like, okay, get on back, get back Aww. to work, which is just so sad. It's a whole nother topic. Very yeah. much. So my top three things that I ask every woman at that two to three week checkup that I do in the OB offices are, number one, do you have a village? Because mm-hmm. that is vital. Support, yeah. You need that support. Yeah. And it's funny because so often when I talk to a second or third time mom, they're like, oh yeah, no, we have great friends in town. Um, and so they're like, oh yeah, we have a great support system. But so often first time moms don't because... Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily have other friends with babies. You might this be their, their first, first baby, one of right? the group, friend they group. Might be, that's exactly it. They're yeah. the first one of their friend group. And so really your your kids help you make friends, which is so funny to say, but it's true. true yeah. Because you're going to a music class or you're going to preschool with other parents right. or you're going to story time at the library or these other things to do for your kids. Or at least friends that are in your same like life life stage. Yeah, it's huge. And so by, again, by second or third baby, very often you're like, oh yes, I have a village because my daughter goes to this art class every day and that's where I met my mom friends. Or they go to this, you know, baby gym class and that's where I met mom friends. Or we do stroller strides and that's where yeah. I met mom friends. But so often with a first time mom, you don't. you don't have that. Yeah. So I always encourage them, if you don't have a village, find a village. Yeah. So whether that is all the things I mentioned, going to a stroller strides when your doctor has cleared you. It's not about the exercise. It's about the community. The socialization, yes. yeah. Or go to, you know, some of the classes that we have locally are like a mom-baby infant massage class oh, or yeah. a happiest baby on the block or, you know, these different classes yeah. that you can learn about your baby. But, of course, other moms are going to be there. Or, yes, go to a mom-baby story time at the library. Even just Google, you know, here it would be Denver Moms groups. Yeah. See what comes up or go to meetup.com. See what oh, comes yeah. up. If there's a mops near you. Go to one of those. Anywhere where you can go where other moms are, where you can start building community yeah. is huge. So that's my number one. Okay. Who's your Who's your village? Who's your support? My number two is, are you getting fresh air and or exercise? Mm-hmm. Now, in that two to three week mark, I'm not talking about get on out there to CrossFit, right? That's crazy. <laughs> no way, yeah. No, you're not even cleared. But, you know, so I know it's tougher if you live in a cold environment to have winter babies, and that is really hard. But if you can even get to the mall and walk inside or oh, something. that's good, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so right now, I'm very, I feel very fortunate to be able to say to my moms, I mean, their babies were born in May and June, so, like, please oh, right. get outside. And, yeah. You know, take a walk if you can. But if you can't take a walk, if you're not feeling up to that, can you at least sit on your front patio, on your back porch, go to the park Even and a change sit? of scenery. Yes. Yeah. Get out of the house. Yeah. Because that fresh air, I think someone was telling me that NPR just did a little story on um, listening to 20 minutes of birds chirping, like increases serotonin or something. Wow. Right? And just yeah. the receptors. And it's just a, such a good thing to have fresh air, sunshine, mm-hmm. birds chirping. Because otherwise sometimes you can feel, especially if you're breastfeeding, you're like, I feel like I'm literally a cow sitting in this cave and all I'm doing is eating, sleeping, poop. I'm staying here, the baby's going out, and I'm just sitting here waiting for the next feeding practically. Yeah. I remember sometimes feeling with, I have one son, but that like life was just going on without me. Right. And it was you're a super weird feeling. And Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, but exactly. just getting out, you feel like you're part of the world again. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So whatever you can do to get that fresh air, once your doctor clears you, I love the idea of doing a stroller strides or a mom baby yoga class. And again, it's not about, I'm not a fitness gal. It's not about getting your post or your pre-baby body back, but it is about, we all know how closely it's intertwined yeah. mental health and physical activity are. They sure. just are. It's proven. Yeah. So if you can be doing, again, a baby yoga class, you're obviously not going to be like sweating to the oldies or something, <laughs> right? You're not, it's not about necessarily, oh, I look phenomenal, but it's about How interaction you with your baby and you're doing something. And um, so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of that. Or like I said, a stroller strides. Or if you are lucky enough to truly, you know, have your husband watch your baby and, and go to the gym or go for a run and that's your thing. Absolutely. Um, So that's my number two is fresh air and or exercise. And then finally, are you doing something for yourself every single day? And I think for me, this is such a huge one because I don't know about anyone else, but I know I personally left the hospital with like a little treat of mom guilt. And like that just comes home with you. Yeah. Right? That's just... Thing. I don't know anyone who hasn't had the mom's That's guilt. It. And you feel like if you're not with your baby, you should be with your baby. Right. If you're with your baby, you should be doing other things. And there's yeah. just this constant struggle of, you know, I should, 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 right? Mm-hmm. There's tons of shoulds. And so I will be the first to admit that, I mean, I think my daughter was maybe even seven. And I was like, oh, yeah, I used to like to do those things. I mean, I had so completely mm. lost myself in parenting and being a mom that if I'm being honest with you, I didn't feel, I don't think I was being a very good wife. I don't think, mm-hmm. I know I wasn't being a very good friend. I definitely wasn't being a very good friend to myself. Right. And so all these things that had made me who I was, that made Free my baby. husband fall in love with me. Yes, and I'm not saying it was about keeping him attracted, but it was about who I was and yeah. what I had passion for and who the the identity that made me me Mm-hmm. and everything was about my kids and well I you know I don't need that because I could do something for my kids mm-hmm. and that's true I'm not saying go and spend thousands on yourself and leave your kids in rags it's right. not necessarily about that but it's can you do something for yourself for 20 minutes every day I mean let's be honest cars need gas to drive right right they do not go anywhere without gas right and that's how moms are you have to put gas in your you car you gotta fill yourself up yeah you're not gonna be good to anyone else if you don't so I say to my mamas I'm like if you can take a nap for 20 minutes, take mm-hmm. a shower for 20 minutes, read a book that's not a parenting book for 20 <laughs> minutes, watch a show for 30 minutes, right? take a walk for 20 minutes, go to Target because you want new earrings, not because the baby needs diapers. And maybe by yourself. Exactly, right? <laughs> so something for yourself or even, even if it's, okay, I'm going to start my day with uh, with scrambled eggs mm-hmm. and a green smoothie because I want to s- take care of me to start my day so right. that it's not yeah. three o'clock and I've had coffee and chicken nuggets, which is <laughs> right. very easy to do, right? <laughs> yeah. And so even if that's how you want to start your day, yeah. Um, I, I definitely encourage moms if you have the opportunity because, I mean, there's a whole another podcast for single moms because that is no joke. It's a whole another thing, right? yeah. I mean, that is... The exhaustion is just unfathomable to me. Mm-hmm. But if you are fortunate enough to have a partner where you can say, you know what, maybe I'm not returning to work, but they are. So every night when they come home from work, I'm getting 30 minutes to mm-hmm. myself and they're doing bath and book time. And mm-hmm. that's their special time too, allowing them to have their special time right. so that you can have a break to just do you. Yeah. Because otherwise, I, I promise you that it will be seven years and you'll wake up and be like, oh, I, I used to be this other person mm-hmm. and I don't even recognize myself anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's not about 
rushing off to the fourth season for weeks on end. Although, great, if you have the opportunity <laughs> to do that, take advantage, please. <laughs> but it's truly about, can you just take care of you for 20 minutes mm-hmm. a day? Right. That's it. Yeah. Well, I think just hearing that, it's, I could see how your patients love talking to you because it's like, okay, if I if hearing that is going to be helpful, I think I could do that. And all of a sudden, I imagine it feels like, okay, I can like... I have a plan. I, I have steps. Like, I think that is just so awesome. So, yeah. I'm sure you're, they're so lucky to have you, you. And, and I so appreciate your time. Thanks so much for listening. Please leave a review and share with a friend. And if you're enthusiastic about something and want to share it, please contact me at michelle at enthusiasmdiaries.com. <laughs>